His name was Charles Templeton, virtually unknown today, but at one time, Templeton and Billy Graham toured the world, filling stadiums. At that time, many predicted it would be Templeton and not Graham who would become the well, most well-known evangelist in history, but the direction of Templeton's life changed with a single picture. Perhaps you've seen it, a Life magazine photo of an African mother holding her child who had died because of a lack of rain. He was so disturbed by this image that Templeton began to question his faith, and over time, honest doubt culminated in his rejecting Christianity. He wrote a book about it, Farewell to God, where he described what happened. Who runs the rain? I don't. You don't. He does. But when I saw that photograph, I immediately knew it's not possible for this to happen and for there to be a loving God. A loving God could not possibly be the author of the horrors we've been describing. He concludes, it's not possible for an intelligent person to believe there is a deity who loves. Templeton concludes, Jesus said, are, not, are you not of more value than many sparrows? But if God grieves over the death of one sparrow, how could his eternal spirit bear the sickness, suffering, and death of the multiplied millions of men, women, and children in every part of the world in every century uh, since time began. All of our lessons over these 20 weeks were chosen around one controlling question. If you only had one year to invest in someone you cared about and to impart to them the essentials of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, what would you include? A disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. A disciple is someone learning from Jesus how to live in the kingdom of God today. And these lessons uh, have been spelling out the contours of that new kingdom life. But we come today to the one reality that threatens to tumble and undo all we've covered. Thomas Aquinas once wrote that suffering constitutes the single greatest challenge to Christian faith. And John Stott added that a sensitive spirit must ask how suffering can possibly be reconciled with God's goodness and God's love. To put it simply, nothing can undermine our faith like navigating inexplicable suffering. For that reason, a disciple of Jesus must be equipped with a theology of suffering, a way to process the trials that are sure to come into our lives. Let's frame our conversation around a psalm in the Bible, the darkest one in the book, Psalm 88, written by a man named Heman. This is verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. You have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused all my companions to shun me, and you've made me to horror to them. Every day I call upon you. I spread out my hands to you. 
Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Are your wonders known in the darkness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults, they destroy me. They surround me like a flood all the day long. He concludes, You have caused my closest friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Peter Kraft once wrote that the question of suffering turns like a fish hook in the human heart, as it turned in the heart of a man named Heman, author of Psalm 88. His is not a polite, dignified prayer. He says, he cries out to the Lord, and the word means a protracted wailing. He cries out, my soul is full of troubles. I have no strength left. I'm isolated and lonely. I feel trapped. I'm helpless. We don't know much about Heman. He's mentioned a few other times in the Bible. He was one of the wise men of Solomon's reign. He was founder of the choir known as the Sons of Korah. He was a singer, a worship director. In other words, here was a man who spent his life singing praises to God and composing songs of praise for others. And yet, his own song ends. Here's verse 18 in another translation. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me, and the darkness is my closest friend. It's remarkable that of the hundreds of songs that Heman must have written, this is the only one that remains, Psalm 88. And it's in the middle of the Bible, which Christians believe God inspired, as if to say behind Heman's words is the Spirit of God alerting us that there is a time for sad songs. It does make you wonder when is the last time you heard a lament like this in, in church, which is curious given that a large number of the Bible's uh, hymn book, the Psalms, over half of them at least are laments. We can sometimes think that voicing cries of complaint implies a lack of faith, but for people who actually walk with God, these songs remind us that real faith insists upon encountering God in the real world. And in that world, pain and suffering are a part of our lives. Psalm 88 is a prayer. It begins in verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out. God not only allows our cries, he gives us the very words. So with God's permission, let's follow Heman's lead and ask the question, why does a good God allow such suffering in his world? We should admit there's something wrong with giving a talk on this topic because the last thing a suffering person needs is a sermon. Yet sooner or later, we will all be compelled to navigate these questions, and it's best if we can ask them before we find ourselves overwhelmed in the midst of our own storm. In 1940, C.S. Lewis wrote a classic little book called The Problem of Pain, subtitled How Human Suffering Causes Intolerable Intellectual Problems. In his book, Lewis admitted the problem of pain is insoluble unless we adjust our understanding of what we mean by saying God is all-powerful or good. 
As to God being all-powerful, Lewis wrote, even an all-powerful God could not have created a world in which people had genuine freedom, and yet there was no potentiality for evil. As to God being good, Lewis continues, the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble as long as we attach a trivial meaning to our word love. We are made that God may love us, but to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because He is what He is, He must labor to make us lovable. We're a divine work of art, something God is making, and therefore something with which God will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble. But over the great picture of his life, he will take endless trouble and thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it could feel. Lewis concludes, It's natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious, less arduous destiny. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Lewis calls suffering God's intolerable compliment, his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He even goes further to suggest that if anything, evil and suffering might be an even bigger problem for people who reject God. Recalling the atheism of his youth, Lewis writes, My argument against God was that the universe seemed cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, my argument against God collapsed too. For my argument depended on saying the world really was unjust, not simply that it didn't please my fancies. Lewis concludes, my atheism turned out to be too simple. Lewis is pointing out that his old objections to God were based on a sense of how things ought to be. People ought not to suffer, die of hunger, be killed in earthquakes. But if there is no God, if we are just the product of a blind evolutionary chance, then why are we so upset at nature just taking its course? Death, destruction, violence, these are natural. On what basis then can we complain? On what grounds can we say the world ought to be another way? Lewis is saying that suffering only appalls us if we have some sense this is not the way the world is supposed to be. But on what basis can we be outraged unless we're assuming the very thing we're denying, the reality of some supernatural standard? Lewis discovered if he rejected God, that didn't make the problem of suffering go away. In some ways, it only made it an even bigger problem. He's pointing out that suffering is a problem not just for the Christian, it's a problem for all of us. And Lewis, in his inimitable way, proved quite rationally that evil and suffering can coexist with a good and loving God. People often say today, I could never believe in a God in a world like this. But anyone who says that has smuggled in an assumption, one that sounds reasonable but is very much an article of faith. The assumption is that if evil appears pointless to us, then in fact it must be pointless. But just because we can't see a good reason why God might allow something terrible to happen doesn't mean there can't be a reason. 
as Tim Keller once put it, if you have a God great enough to be mad at, you have a God great enough to have reasons you can't understand. And that happens to be where the book of Job in the Bible ends. You might know the book of Job is the most extended treatment of suffering in all the Bible. Job's friends get a bad rap, deservedly so, for assuming something a lot of people have always assumed, that if you're suffering, you must have done something bad. But the Bible insists this is not the case. Job, we are clearly told, was the most upright and blameless man of his day. Not to mention Jesus, the most perfect man who ever lived, and yet Jesus suffered terribly. Because of Jesus, we can never say about anyone that he or she must be suffering because of some sin they committed. Job asked God many questions, uh, basically turning around why God has allowed him to suffer in spite of Job's integrity. If you read Job sometime, and I hope you will, I hope you'll notice that God never directly answers Job's questions. In the end, Job never finds out why he was allowed to suffer. Instead, the book of Job ends with God asking Job questions, most of them about the wonders of nature. And you might ask yourself, why is God talking to Job about the wonders of nature? And perhaps the Lord was telling his servant, there is so much about God's world that we will never understand. In the same way with our suffering, just because we can't see or understand any possible reason doesn't mean in his infinite wisdom God doesn't have one. The Bible's focus is not so much on the philosophical questions we might be prone to ask, why, Lord? But instead, the Bible's emphasis falls on what we do have control over, how we will respond to the suffering that is sure to come our way. Many have proven intellectually how it's possible to hold together an all-powerful, all-loving God with our experience of suffering. Yet, the deeper problem remains. Even if such a God could, in theory, exist, how could we be expected to trust, let alone love a God, who allows such things to happen to us? C.S. Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain in 1940. Little did he know it was not the last book on The Problem of Pain he would write. That would be A Grief Observed, written some 20 years later, under a pseudonym after the death of his wife. In this later book, the intellectual answers that he gave in The Problem of Pain collided with the questions of his own heart. Listen as Lewis, the foremost defender of the Christian faith in the 20th century, writes words that are hard for us to hear. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing Him, if you turn to Him then with praise, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. Lewis, he knew all the right answers, and yet when his beloved wife died, he felt the same thing that Heman, author of Psalm 88, had felt, the silence. You could say in Psalm 88, Heman named the silences. And it is such a consolation that God not only knows how we will speak in our grief, but actually gave these very words. We could pray back to him when we have no words. You might say, but all those words 
don't get God off the hook for my own suffering or for the world's evil and suffering. True. But we do have a choice how we will respond to the suffering that comes. And more than any other choice we have, Christianity gives us resources to endure suffering and evil with courage and hope rather than with bitterness and despair. True, Psalm 88 ends in darkness. It's the final word of that psalm. But in the book of Job, God ends his silence by speaking his word. You say, well, that was Job. God spoke personally to Job. But if you read the book carefully, you'll notice it was through his suffering that Job encountered the Lord that he always thought he knew about. Suffering in a very real way introduced Job personally to God. And it's the same for us. In our suffering today, God still speaks a very personal word. That's one of Jesus' names, the Word of God. John 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To our tears, God doesn't write a book. God sends His Son. Jesus is the answer of God to all of our tears. God's answer to our cries is not something, but someone. God does not give an abstract response because our anguish, anguish is always personal. In Psalm 88, Heman wrote, I am in the regions dark and deep. But Jesus, he went down to the very bottom of the dark and deep. He took the sin of the world onto his shoulders. He became sin. Heman felt like he was in a pit. But Jesus went all the way down into hell. Jesus could actually say with verse 14 of Psalm 88, O Lord, why do you hide your face from me? Or verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Heman was writing how he felt, but in Jesus' case, this is what he actually experienced. He endured that wrath and that desolation on our behalf to pay our debts, to forgive us our sins. Peter Kraft, professor at Boston College, put it, Jesus is not God off the hook, but God on the hook. You see, all the religions in the world, every philosophy of life, takes up the question of how to deal with suffering. But only Christianity says that evil and suffering are a problem even for God, a problem so great that He entered all the way into it. The fact that we worship a God who knows suffering to the point of death makes Christianity different from every other religion and philosophy of life. This is why the deity of Christ is so essential. If that's not God on the cross, but only a good man, then God is not off the hook in our suffering. And if God is not on the hook, then God is not off the hook. That's what it means to become a Christian. It's to believe that Jesus is God with us. And all of our anguished questions about all of our suffering finally converge in Jesus. Jesus means that God doesn't just suffer for us, for our sins. Jesus shows us that God suffers with us. That means he's sitting beside you at the funeral of your parents. When you feel broken, wasn't Jesus the one who said, this is my body, which is broken? When you feel rejected and betrayed, even by those closest to you and treated so unfairly, wasn't Jesus also despised and rejected, betrayed with a kiss, condemned by a sham trial? If you felt overcome with sadness, don't you know Jesus too was overwhelmed with sorrow? He knows what it feels like to have a prayer go unanswered, a desperate prayer. 
When you're praying to Jesus, you're praying to a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. The Bible goes so far to assure us that nothing we could ever suffer will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Corey Ten Boom once put it, no matter how deep our darkness, God's love is deeper still. Charles Templeton asked a fair question. How could God bear all the pain and suffering in this world? And our only response is that he did bear it. He bore it. He came all the way down under the weight of it. And it's only because of Jesus that we can believe in God in a world like ours. How could anyone desire to trust a God who is immune to our pain? God not only allows us to ask our questions and God not only gives us the words to pray back to him, God enters all the way into human pain. The word became flesh. Perhaps you've noticed that when Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, that his scars remain as they will be for all eternity. As if to say the crucifixion is not just what happened to Jesus. The crucifixion is who Jesus is. And if we want to know this Jesus, well, Paul put it this way, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Daring to suggest that the only way for us to know Christ is for us to walk the path that he walked, the path of suffering. For our pain is somehow connected to his pain and somehow connects us to him. Because of the cross, we can be assured that God is not only with us in solidarity, but God promises to work through all the pain and suffering that he allows in our lives to heal us, to bring us closer to himself. In his novel, Cry the Beloved Country, Alan Payton said, I've never thought a Christian would be free of suffering, for our Lord suffered. And I've come to believe that he suffered not to save us from suffering, but to teach us how to bear suffering, for he knew there's no life without suffering. In Jesus, God brings redemption to our suffering. He promised us that our suffering is not in vain. It was Teresa of Avila who said that from heaven, the most miserable earthly life will look like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. Robert Coles teaches at Harvard Medical School. In his book, Migrants, Sharecroppers, and Mountaineers, he tells a story from the mouth of a migrant farm farmhand mother. Last year, we went to a little church. We had all our children there, the baby included. The Reverend Jackson was there. I can't forget him. He told us how glad we should be that we're in this country because it's Christian and not godless. Then my husband went and lost his temper. Something happened to his nerves. He got up and started shouting at the Reverend. He went up to Reverend Jackson and told him to shut up and never speak again. Not to us, not to the migrant people. To leave us alone. Then he took our baby and he held her right before his face, the ministers, and he screamed at the ministers. I don't remember what he said, but he told them, here was our little Annie and she's never been to the doctor and she's sick and we got no money. Then the reverend did answer and that was his mistake. He said we should be careful and not start blaming God and criticizing him and complaining to him. God worries about your future, the reverend said. Well, my husband near exploded. He shouted about ten times to the reverend, Future? Future? He asked the reverend about Annie's future. Then he held our Annie as high as he could, right near the cross at the front of the church. And then he started yelling at God. 
He told God he better stop having the ministers speak for him, that he should come down and see for himself and not have the preachers speak for him. He stopped and there wasn't a sound in the church until a couple of men said my husband was right. And a few people clapped. I felt real funny. This migrant family sums up the dilemma of pain and suffering as well as it can be expressed. Stop having the preacher speak for you and come down and see for yourself, shouted the desperate father. Holding up his child near the cross in the old country church, he demanded God come down and see for himself what this world is like. The cross forever reminds us that that's what God in Christ has done. He came all the way down and bore the pain of hell that we might know we will never, no, not ever, be forsaken by him. He is with us and he is for us. Are you not of more value than a sparrow? Jesus never says the sparrows don't fall. He says that no matter how far we may fall, in the words of the psalmist, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. See you next week.